Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 101 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Later in today's show, guest geeks John Langan and Kat Howard will be joining me to discuss writers as characters in books and movies. But first up, we've got an interview with legendary science fiction writer Joe Haldeman, author of the classic 1974 novel The Forever War. That book and many of Joe's other works are based on his experience being drafted to fight in Vietnam, where he was wounded in combat. His most recent book is a thriller called Work Done for Hire. So, Joe Haldeman, welcome to the show. Hi, glad to be here. All right, and so your new book is called Work Done for Hire, and it's the story of a man named Jack Daly. You want to just tell us about him? Well, Jack Daly's a guy who was uh, drafted into a, a slightly future army, just, you know, maybe as little as 10 years from now. And uh, having trained as a sniper, he goes off to a place that they just call the desert. And I, I think that it's Iran, but I'm not sure what it is. I don't really care because... He's back from it when the story starts. And he was wounded. Uh, he lost a finger from another sniper, evidently. But, uh, you know, he's getting along okay. He's got a little disability pension, and he's writing. And basically, when the story opens up, he gets this uh, an interesting contract offer to, to write a treatment for a movie. And then within a few days, he gets a more sinister uh, kind of proposal that there's a knock on the door and when he opens it there's a long rectangular box and inside of it is a sniper rifle exactly the kind he used in the war with a little note saying would you kill a really bad man for a hundred thousand dollars and they give him I think ten thousand dollars down as earnest money and <laughs> so he's kind of in a quandary yet he definitely is not going to kill anybody for hire, but it is a little bit tempting, and he did kill a lot of people for not any great reason as far as he was concerned. So, you know, he can entertain it as a thought experiment, even though he's not going to say yes. But then he finds out that the people who are offering uh, the money will also punish him if he doesn't take it, and uh, they, they threaten to kill his girlfriend. And, uh, you know, it starts to get more complicated. <laughs> uh, and you mentioned that it's a it's set in the very near future, but it's essentially a straight thriller novel, uh, unlike most of your work, which is more science fiction. Uh, did you set out to write more a more realistic novel, or did the story just develop that way? Well, it really just developed that way. I, uh, as often happens, I just started writing without any plan as to what the novel was going to be about. And I've been reading about uh, the War in the Gulf, and uh, I read a book about sniping, and actually a couple of books about sniping. And I'd been interested in that for a, an earlier novel about 10 years ago. I'd looked it up. You know, we've had a sniper manual in the U.S. Army back from the time of the Civil War. It's always been an art that's well studied. And so, although I'm not a very good shot myself, and the Army didn't have me do any sniping while I was in Vietnam, but uh, it was always kind of an interesting thing. You know, it's this illusion of godlike power and uh, being able to murder strangers and be paid for it, which is just uh, a strange kind of a fantasy. 
So I uh, I was drawn to write a story about a sniper, but I didn't want things to have gone well for him. He didn't enjoy being a sniper. He was always sort of morally confused and uh, and <laughs> slowly going mad doing the job. So uh, he carries that into civilian life, and he doesn't really have a chance to recover from it when he's uh, approached by these people unknown who want to take advantage of his experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so you mentioned that he's kind of that he's given this sinister offer to be essentially a contract killer, and he's also given this offer to write a, a screenplay novelization. Could you talk a little bit more about the title "Work Done for Hire" and just what that means for writers? Sure. Uh, "Work Done for Hire" in terms of contract law is a book or a movie or or whatever that you agree to do, but you will not take credit for it and you will not get the copyright. The copyright will be assigned to a third party. And uh, basically, I've done works done for hire myself. It's kind of a an ambiguous uh, sort of achievement. <laughs> it means somebody thinks you can do a book and is willing to pay you for it, but they're also willing to take the copyright themselves. <laughs> uh, usually it's associated with uh, Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've done a couple. I did two of them and uh, then did not do the third. It's <laughs> <laughs> not too you know, uplifting and exercise. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and could you tell us a little bit about the, the work for hire assignment that Jack is uh, is given in this book? Well, in this one, uh, basically, they call him and say, rather, his, his agent gets in touch with a book producer in Hollywood. And the book producer wants Jack to write the treatment for a movie from uh, about a two or three paragraph description of what the story would be and so he says sure you know he could do that and uh, really he just rattles it out uh, without too much concern for literary value or anything and and we uh, I drop chapters from the book in through the book that I'm writing and he has actually has a lot of fun with it but uh, but then it takes a sinister turn when stories start to come together yeah, and I guess the, the story that he's writing, it's about a private investigator who's hired to track down a serial killer, and yeah, the right. ser- serial killer believes that he's an alien. Right. The serial killer thinks that he's from another planet, and we, the readers, are given to understand that that's probably just a fantasy that he's living through. But no external uh, objective proof is given for either assertion. So, you know, I try to keep the reader a little off balance there. Uh, and um, and the serial killer character who calls himself Hunter is himself a science fiction fan. So there's sort of yeah. like uh, different layers to it. There's, there's the science fiction fan within a science fiction story within a novel. Um, yeah. What is the... And, and one novel that we see Hunter reading is, is called The Ponds of Null A by A.E. Van Vogt. Does that yeah. title have any particular significance? Well... The Pawns of Nala was a great classic of the 1950s, which is often used as an example of how horrible science fiction was in the 1950s. <laughs> Van Vogt was a really good writer of adventures and and a certain kind of freewheeling science fiction, which does not bear close analysis from a, you know from a modern or postmodern point of view. And the Pawns of Null A is, uh, was one of his most 
successful of these, but read as a, uh, well, if it came out today, it probably wouldn't have been published, even though it's a classic, uh, in the way science fiction and, uh, and genre fiction books can be classics and still bad writing. They're really old-fashioned, and people who love them probably love them even more for their being old-fashioned. Uh-huh. But they but they appeal to serial killers and aliens, probably. Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, that was just another a thing that came to me. I I wrote a short story from that guy's point of view, which was in a, an anthology a couple of years ago. Uh, which which anthology? I'm trying to think of the name of it. Uh, it's uh, hmm. <laughs> it was obscure. Uh, the thing is. <laughs> I've written so many stories, and if I don't have my list in front of me, it's hard to pin them down. Uh, it was a big red book. Does that help? <laughs> uh, it was just a, th- a thing that I wrote for a friend, and uh, and then thought it had some real possibilities as a as a more commercial novel. And then I thought, well, no, I'll use this as the secondary novel in this more literary novel about a hack writer. Uh-huh. And, <laughs> so it gets more and more complicated, I'm afraid. Yeah. I mean, what is it like uh, using a writer for a protagonist? Are there any particular advantages or disadvantages to doing that? Well, one disadvantage is you probably know too much about it, and, and you want to be accurate about the details of a writer's life, and yet you you want to make a good story at it. I mean, I know more writers than I know any other profession except perhaps professors. And I can guarantee writers don't have exciting lives. You know, you basically sit there and, and type away and, and eventually uh, rewrite the thing until it is in shape to be sold. And then you start another one and the beat goes on. To me, it's an exciting life because I think that writing is exciting, even other people's writing. But uh, I can see that an objective observer would look at me sitting here and, you know, it doesn't look very exciting. I think uh, probably a pharmacist or, a, you know, even a drugstore clerk probably sees more interesting stuff and uh, in some ways has a more exciting life. Mm-hmm. Although it occurred to me reading this book, though, that one advantage of using a writer as a protagonist is that you can give that character almost any skill you can imagine because you just have to say, oh, I wrote a book about this a couple of years ago and I had to research <laughs> X and they can exactly. do Yeah, that was fun. <laughs> <laughs> Because, because uh, you know, Jack has all sorts of obscure knowledge uh, involving uh, telecommunications and, and things like that in the book. Yeah, right. And weapons and uh, all sorts of stuff that you would expect an adventure writer to know. Mm-hmm. And he actually he also spends a lot of this book on a bicycle. And I yeah. know that you're a fairly serious bicyclist. Uh, how much of your own cycling experience did you draw on to to write the book? Oh, just some mechanical stuff. Uh, Actually, the part of the trip where he rides was uh, part of a, a trip I made from the, with my wife from the East Coast to the West Coast. We took a, uh, a set of maps that uh, a national organization uh, published years ago, and we just followed that, and it was fun. So when I wanted to write this part of the book, I pulled out my old maps and put it in the middle of a, a part of the uh, of the American South. It's, you know, a place where somebody would hang around if he wanted to 
be able to kill people and spirit them away. Mm. <laughs> it's just, I don't want to give up, give away too much of the book, but there is a fellow like that in there. Uh, yeah, I was reading a little bit about your cycling trip on your blog. Um, yeah. There was some funny stuff in there, like you, you helped put out a house fire at one point. Yeah, yeah that was fun. That was very fun. We were just pedaling along, and, and there were all these people standing around a lawn which was on fire. And they were sort of carrying a little bucket back and forth. And so we got off our bicycles and ran in to help them uh, put up blankets and things to actually put the thing out. And we were dressed like superheroes in spandex. <laughs> and there were these little, little bunch of country folks in Georgia. And they thought we were much more exciting than the fire, I think. <laughs> so that was our, our, big, our moment, our 15 minutes of fame, I guess. Uh-huh. And did you, I mean, from reading your blog, it sounds like you had a bicycle accident and didn't finish the trip. Did you ever, uh, what was the ultimate? Yeah, I did finish it ultimately. Uh, yeah, in Alabama, I had a an accident that flipped me at a pretty high rate of speed for a bicycle. and I landed on my helmet and broke the helmet, and I broke my shoulder and got scraped up and such. So, but, you know, all we did was uh, we were, we had a, an RV, so we just went to an RV park and sat and drank beer for a few weeks. <laughs> took, took off again. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, you say in your blog that you were planning to turn that trip into a book called Road. Did that? What What happened with that? Well, in fact, I wrote uh, I don't know about thirty pages, and my uh, my agent said, "Don't do this." <laughs> he said, "You don't have any idea." how many hundreds of manuscripts that are exactly this, the record of a bike trip across America. He says, you couldn't sell that if you were Ernest Hemingway. <laughs> I thought, oh, okay. <laughs> hmm. uh, I'm, not, I'm not a really practical man, but I think that was pretty practical advice. Uh -huh. But so you were able to use that in work done for hire, though, to some, yeah, to some degree? Yeah, in fact, uh, quite a bit of it. Uh, one thing I was wondering about in, in Work Done for Hire is one of the places they passed is called Carlinville. And there's just this line about how this was once the home of the woman H.G. Wells called the most intelligent woman in America. Yeah. What, what is the story behind that? Well, the story is I, I got that out of a, a book. That, that is a book that was describing the various small towns they were going through. And I thought, oh, my God, that is so cool. <laughs> I had put it into my own book. <laughs> I don't know anything about it except for that uh, that one quote. Oh, you don't know who the woman is or anything? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, we'll have to go look it up online. I'll have to Google it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, well, you, you mentioned that, uh, that work done for hire, uh, that doing work for hire writing is sort of this ambiguous sort of thing. Um, yeah. and, and you mentioned that you've written two, you, two, you did two novels, and I guess you... Um, you have actually had some dealings with Hollywood as well. Um, you yeah. you worked on a, a screenplay for the movie Robot Jocks. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, I heard sort of. I don't. You could tell me if this is true. The story I heard was that this wealthy Hollywood producer or something invited you and your wife to come live with him or somewhere for a couple months and, and work on that screenplay. Well, that's not quite it. Actually, we went to Rome and we stayed in a hotel. Uh, the producer did have a chalet. A lovely thing, just a, a a wealthy man's dream, which was about, I'm saying, 50 or 60 miles outside of Rome. 
And we did go there one day for a, an all-day feast and uh, and walk around the town that uh, basically was like a baronial estate. Hmm. And it was it was fun to see how the other half lives. But uh, no, they didn't <laughs> they didn't offer to put us up there. But they did pay for a really really nice hotel on the Via Veneto. Mm-hmm. So I can't explain. <laughs> Um, but I, I gather that they, they made a lot of changes to the story, though, or it didn't oh, yeah. really... About Hollywood. Yeah. I I don't have any uh, real ambition to do that again. I wanted to do it once, and that's, that was enough. It was fun. Uh-huh. But ultimately, you know, it's, it is work done for hire, and you work hard, and then somebody else gets the credit. It's uh, not a great deal. Mm-hmm. So sort of like that in contract killing... Sort of two things you don't have much interest in. <laughs> well, I'm not a good enough shot. To be a yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they'd find out and fire me. I don't know. That'd be a bad bunch to get on the wrong side of. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So you had another book ca- that came out recently called uh, "The Best of Joe Haldeman" that was edited by Jonathan Strawn and Gary K. Wolf. Uh, could you just yeah. talk a bit about how that project came about? Well, that's basically. It's the best of Joe Haldeman, that it's the best short stories that I've written. And I'm actually a novelist. I don't write that many short stories. So I looked at the list of all the short stories I've ever published, and I found that their anthology comprised almost exactly half of the stories. So there is room for another book, which is the worst of Joe Haldeman, <laughs> <laughs> the uh, mirror image of, of all those wonderful stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I haven't actually proposed it to anybody. Yeah, has anyone ever done a worst of? I mean, you think maybe just the novelty of it would uh, get it some attention or something? I wonder. I'm, I'm sure that somebody's done it as a title. And then, uh, you know. <laughs> In fact, I do remember a worst of. That was a, It was an advertisement in Publishers Weekly. That's all I know of it. But somebody years and years ago did a you know, the worst of Mike Tchaikovsky or something. <laughs> um, and, and for this for this best of book, you, you wrote a note for each story. Uh, just kind of yeah. what was it like uh, looking back at all those stories? And did you see patterns or see ways that your writing had changed or things like that? Well, yeah, it was fun. I saw my writing become more sophisticated, of course. Uh, but pretty quickly, I learned the game, uh, I don't know, five years, seven years after I started, I was producing some of the things that are the best I've done, which I shouldn't be, be too proud of. I, haven't, guess, I guess I haven't improved that much over the last 30 years. But uh, yeah, I uh, I saw patterns repeating, which had been pointed out to me before. A guy wrote a book about my work, and he identified this trope of beheading, <laughs> because about half the stories that I've written have somebody being beheaded which is a kind of a singular habit for a writer. But in fact, I saw somebody beheaded in Vietnam, and so that's been sort of, uh, it sort of clings to you. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Uh, I, I try not to, I don't study the people who write about me. I think that way lies some kind of madness. And I don't write to satisfy critics and such. I, you know, I write for myself and and for my readers in a secondary way. Mm-hmm. 
Well, and it seems like you also write for for friends of yours because a lot of the stories in this book were written for various editors who requested oh, stories for yeah. theme, theme anthologies and. Yeah, it's kind of a, it's not a selfless thing, of course. I mean, they offered money. And <laughs> say, oh, that sounds like a cool idea. And it, it's uh, it's kind of fun because the the decision basically is made for you about whether I shall write this story or, some, or do something else. Well, when you tell somebody you're going to write a story about, you know, shoes in the future, mm-hmm. <laughs> you have to sit down and figure out something about shoes in the future and go ahead and write it. It's a it's fun in a way because of the uh, smaller personal investment in it. Yeah, uh, if the story sucks, you can have you say, "What was his idea?" <laughs> <laughs> I mean, could you say what some of those themes were? I mean, did any of those themes uh, were they really challenging, or you wrote a story that you never would have written in a million years if not for that theme? I'm trying to think. If I had the book in front of me, I could probably think about think better. But no, uh, you know, by and large. It's somebody who's doing a theme anthology, and they give you a lot of uh, a lot of latitude. I'm trying to think of the title of one. Uh, uh, Janice Ian coordinated a a book which for for which about the stars it's called, and the stars are the various writers who <laughs> she wanted to write stories, and we each wrote a story about one of her songs. And that was an interesting challenge because, of course, the song uh, was its own narrative, and then you have to, you want to incorporate uh, the pattern of the song into the story so that someone who knows the song will recognize it in the story. But if you don't know the song, it doesn't hurt, uh, you know, the story's still coherent. And that was fun to do. That was kind of like a uh, uh, hat trick, uh, being able to satisfy all these things. I got a lot of the stories that I wrote back in the 70s and 80s were based on cover illustrations or paintings or drawings that somebody had done that a magazine purchased and then they were looking for somebody to write a story about that. And so I'm, I'm out here with my hand up and <laughs> so I got chosen for some of those. Uh, Tricentennial was one of those, right? That was yeah. written for a illustration. That's right. It was uh, about as, uh, restricted a, uh, an assignment as I've ever had because the illustration had all sorts of singularities in terms of uh, physics and, and art, and I had to satisfy all them at once. And it was tremendously successful. It was uh, won awards and everything. Unfortunately, or perhaps fortunately, it was not the kind of story that I could expand into a novel, so I couldn't get into that particular categories. Hmm. Um, but this this best of Joe Haldeman, it does include your story Hero, which was expanded into a novel into the Forever War. That's right. Yeah. I I just went I just re- read Hero. You know, I read the Forever War years ago, and I just read Hero, and I was really struck in your author's note. You say that you like like you were saying earlier about work done for hire that you didn't really have any um, like outline or anything when you start, sat down to write it. Yeah. And I was just amazed by how much detail there is in the story and how well worked out. Uh, everything is regarding the suits and the environment on Sharon and stuff. Um, I was just wondering, did did all that just come straight out of your head, or did you did you research and then go back and rewrite it or anything? You know, what I did was uh, I did research on the fly. Of course, this uh, that story was written before computers, and so I basically was going out to the library every day 
and uh, looking up stuff so that I could write about it tomorrow. Uh, that was my pattern in those days. I basically wrote my fiction during the morning hours, and in the afternoon I'd go out to research. And so, you know, computers probably saved me a certain amount of shoe leather, but I don't get as much exercise <laughs> as I did back in the day. And another thing that really struck me about Hero is that it doesn't feature what I think of as being the central conceit of the Forever War, which is the idea that the Earth is different every time the soldiers come back. Had you yeah. come up with that idea at that point, or did that come later? In fact, I came up with the idea before Hero came out. I, uh, wrote, an, I wrote a short story for Amazing Science Fiction, which was exactly about that, about people who go out over the course of years, they go out to be soldiers, and, and they come back years have passed on Earth when only months have passed in their own lives. And that was the basic point of and the, and the plot logic of that short story. And I guess I, I looked at the two stories, I thought, well, you know, I can cross-fertilize these two and get a, an actual novel out of the situation. Although I don't remember, there was not an aha moment saying, oh my God, I can make a million dollars this week. <laughs> <laughs> but it's obvious if you look at two, the two stories that uh, the end result is the Forever War. Yeah, what was the title of that story that was published in Amazing Stories? It's called Time Peace, a short story. Okay, cool. Now I'll have to go check that out. Um, and then another thing in Hero that really struck me is the way it portrays women in combat. And if people haven't read the story, you know, there are women who fight alongside men and also the Enlisted soldiers are all expected to have sex with each other. Um, yeah, that was, <laughs> I got a lot of flack for that one. <laughs> I was going to add, yeah, so, I mean, could you talk a little bit more about the reactions you got to that? Well, it's funny that uh, I, I didn't get much reaction from feminists, uh, or rather I got positive reaction from feminists, because I, the, uh, the guy who, edited analog, showed me the file of letters they got about that story. It's hundreds of letters, and they were mostly about, how dare you think that we could be so in inhumane as to make women into combat soldiers? And those probably outnumbered by 20 to 1, the ones who said, well, yeah, this makes sense. Why should men have to do all the, all the fighting and killing? Which is basically my own thinking behind it. But uh, the... The subtext is no longer obvious. Uh, when I was fighting in Vietnam, the North Vietnamese did have female combat soldiers. And uh, that was, we thought that was just bizarre. I mean, we, could, we wouldn't do that to American women, at least not in the 1970s or 60s. Uh, of course, now women do fly combat missions and they, they work hand-in-hand on the battlefield with uh, men. And I think, by and large, it's a good thing. Uh-huh. Well, and, and how about the aspect of the soldiers being assigned to have sex with each other? Do you just see that as a, 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 an alienating sort of thing, or do you think that that might actually happen in 100 or 200 years? Well, of course it happens now, to a certain extent. People are not assigned to bed partners or anything like that. I think at the time I wrote it, it was just a weird kind of wishful thinking. <laughs> Uh, if you're going to have women fighting side by side with you, I, I think that intimacy would be uh, 
not a guarantee, but uh, it would happen pretty often. Uh, talking to people who are fighting nowadays, it's still kind of a, a fantasy for men. Uh, the idea of fighting shoulder to shoulder with women, I think, has helped the cause of feminism a lot. But uh, it hasn't made being a soldier any simpler or uh, or being a woman any simpler. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I've, I've heard you say that you still, you, that you, to this day, get letters every day from veterans, um, people who are serving in combat right now. Uh, what kind of things are they saying uh, in recent letters that you've been getting? Well, not every day, but uh, probably once a week I get letters saying how amazing, uh, partly it's how amazing it is that 40 years ago you were able to predict <laughs> the present-day military. And it's not predicted at all, but it's just that metaphorically there are things that are are startling, considering how old the story is. Uh, yeah, I get uh, I get letters from people who uh, who are soldiers nowadays who say, "Oh, you really got it. You you uh, know exactly what it's like here." But you know, I've got news for them. <laughs> it hasn't changed that much. If I could get a letter from somebody fighting in the Civil War, they'd probably say, "You know, <laughs> that's pretty accurate. That's what we feel." Although we don't have disintegrating rays now, we don't even know what rays are. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's just eternal verities and you know, it's just the way soldiers are. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I mean, given the sort of anti-war uh, perspective of a lot of your writing, do you have any uh, optimism that war is becoming less common or will become less common in the future? Well, it would be a nice thing to believe. I suspect that war will become obsolete only when something worse supersedes it. I think uh, we'll keep using force uh, to bring about political ends, but the way the force manifests itself may be more sophisticated mm-hmm. uh, in the future. Like like killer plagues and stuff like that, you mean? Or Well, I would see... Well, yeah, we've used plagues. I mean, we used them to help conquer the West with the blankets that we gave the Indians. But uh, I'm thinking more in terms of weapons that don't look like weapons. Uh, I'm thinking of ways you could win a war without uh, obviously declaring the war in the first place. That seems to be the direction, a direction that uh, combat could go. I mean, uh, nano machines and uh, biological warfare are the obvious directions for the future. Mm-hmm. So you're thinking more in terms of mind control or super propaganda or something like that? Yeah. Propaganda that actually works and is predictable would be the, you know, a, a first order weapon for the future. Of course, it may be that. One hopes, one hopes that they never will be able to use mind control kind of weapons because we're all done for if that happens. Uh, I don't want military people or political people to have that kind of power over, uh, over those of us who just <laughs> go from day to day. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess speaking of, of letters that you've received, uh, I, I, I like the note for your story, Angel of Light. 
uh, in the in the story in your story, Angel of Light, you invent this um, imaginary religion called Chrislam, where it's a combination of Christianity and Islam. And yeah. in your author's note, you say, "Please don't write me any angry letters about how wrong I've gotten it, or if you do, please make them interesting." Uh, <laughs> have you gotten uh, angry letters about that story? You know, I actually haven't. I've gotten a couple of notes from people who are uh, Muslim who appreciated the the sympathetic uh, nature of the character. But most people go, okay, well, he's he's a science fiction writer, and so he's taking a science fictional look at a religion. I tried not to be offensive. And I even read, <laughs> I have to admit, I read The Idiot's Guide to Islam <laughs> <laughs> to try to, you know, not make too terrible mistakes about the basic parts of it. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, another uh, story, a really, really great story from the best of Joe Haldeman is the, your novella, The Hemingway Hoax, which you also expanded into a novel. Uh, it, it's funny, you know, I, I bought a copy of that book at a convention years ago, and I had you sign it. And yeah. while you were signing it, your wife said that while you were writing that, that story, that she could hear you in your room laughing out loud the whole time that you were yeah. writing it. <laughs> yeah, I don't often write deliberately funny books, but uh, that one was. And I had I had a riot with it. It's, <laughs> I was the perfect audience for it, of course, being a person, being a writer who writes about Hemingway. Uh huh. I guess the the premise of the story we should say is it's it's about a Hemingway scholar who tries to produce a fake version of the uh, the manuscripts that Hemingway lost early in his career that his wife kind of left on the train. Yeah, yeah. So that was pretty fun. I came up with the whole idea for it in about ten seconds. I was. A friend was putting me on an airplane to uh, Australia or New Zealand, and we had some time to kill in the airport. Basically, on the way back from the men's room, I had this whole idea of the story, and I I wrote it down as soon as we stopped, which was in, uh, I guess, uh, the Galapagos, and uh, <laughs> that was fun to write. Mm-hmm. I, I loved writing that book, and it was like not working at all. I just typed it out, and as my wife said, I was laughing all the way through <laughs> it. And you're something of a sort of um, amateur Hemingway scholar yourself, right? And you attend the Hemingway conference every year? Yeah, that's true. Um, like, what do people talk about? Like, what's sort of hot in Hemingway studies these days that people would talk about at a conference like that? Well, there's a kind of a uh, backlash from the usual cliche of uh, Hemingway being anti-women and anti-feminists and so forth. Hemingway uh, Hemingway studies cover an awful lot of stuff. And, uh, in fact, part of it is because his life is so tremendously well documented. And he wrote thousands of letters, and they were all kept. And because he was famous, every little thing that he did was written down. And so he's uh, about one of the... He must be the most public American writer right now. Mm-hmm. Actually, you know, on, on your blog, you quoted from uh, the New York Times book review, and, and you say, you quote this article that says, by the mid-80s, the brawling, womanizing train wreck that had characterized so many of the lost generation of post-war writers had gone out of style, replaced by weedy, thin-haired minimalists who had learned their craft at writers' colonies and lived in college towns teaching in master's programs. Um, yeah. <laughs> I guess, could you talk, what was it about that that line that struck you? Well, I I just think it's so true, because I've known writers 
the guys who were like 20 years older than me, whom I hung around with uh, in the 60s and 70s when I was still a young writer, they were very much uh, influenced by this kind of hairy-chested Hemingway myth. And we saw it change over the next 20 years, 30 years, to a kind of uh, obvious uh, rejection of masculinist ideals. And uh, I guess Ray Carver is the uh, the obvious avatar of that. I may have mentioned him in that article. Uh, but, yeah, you don't want to be a hairy-chested, overly male writer because uh, it's way out of uh, fashion. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you, do you think that that's a, a mat- represents a cultural maturity to move past the macho writer, or do you think something has been lost uh, of people who well, like exper- went out and experienced life and got in bar fights and stuff like that? Yeah, I think that particular kind of experience would uh, not help anybody, <laughs> anybody's reputation. But uh, but they still do go out and do things, and uh, and the idea of a writer as an activist is still strong. But now I think uh, you get more points for being politically concerned, if not correct, and uh, not being such a, uh, a kind of selfish. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to use some sort of polite language here, <laughs> but uh, you don't want to be uh, a jerk. Hemingway was a jerk. I mean, he was really a great jerk. He was a good writer, and uh, and he did all sorts of things that I would never have the courage to do. But I don't think I'd enjoy being in the same room with him. Like, it's not my kind of person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, in the Hemingway hoax, it's actually suggested that Hemingway's the, the the sort of macho effect that Hemingway had on the culture might lead to World War III. Yeah, <laughs> I had fun with that one. Yeah, yeah, you get uh, two leaders, one in the United States and one in the Soviet Union, who both were totally influenced by Hemingway. And you know, you, a man doesn't back down, right? A man fights his fights, and if one of them, if they both have nuclear weapons at their disposal, that's really a bad attitude for him to have. I mean, do you think that books have, I mean, was that just sort of a fun idea, or do you think that fiction actually has that sort of impact on the world? I mean, do you do you ever uh, write a story and worry that you might start World War Three if you write the wrong thing? I don't think so. That was a joie d'esprit, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it was just it's a foolish and funny idea. I had to I had to carry it out to its end. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I suppose in some world, men of action would be so much influenced by literature that they would uh, go off the deep end because they read a book that would you know, reward them for it. Uh, I don't see it happening in our society. Well, you know, in a simpler world, the world that we all came from, Yes, one piece of writing could uh, profoundly change the course of human events. Uh, the, the book of Matthew, for instance, could uh, could change a lot. I don't know. Uncle Tom's Cabin evidently did. But you don't hear about books that were pivotal that way anymore. I'm trying to think of any one 
in our culture. Of course, in other cultures where the distribution of literature is more strongly controlled, you can get political things uh, succeeding because they're not uh, in an open market of ideas. If everybody's reading and, uh, and agreeing with the same book, uh, you have a different kind of a situation. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've heard anecdotally that totalitarian regimes are famously hostile to science fiction because they don't want people thinking about possibilities. Well, that's true, or it seems to be true. Uh, when I was in the Soviet Union, science fiction was considered a part of children's literature. And paradoxically, that gave them a certain freedom, if only because the critics who read science fiction were the critics of children's literature. And they didn't go into politics deeply. They're more about entertainment, you know, and amusing ideas and this and that. So the uh, the science fiction writers, and I think especially of Borse and Arkady Strugatsky, they could say some amazing things. They could criticize the regime and with broad, humorous strokes. And the readers saw the game that was going on, but uh, the critics just brushed it off because they had more important things to do. It was a very interesting time to be a science fiction writer. The 70s and 80s, I'm thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, and so uh, we're we're sort of short on time here, so we should start wrapping this up. I guess just uh, recently you, uh, you announced that you're stepping down from your teaching position at MIT. Could you talk a little bit yeah. about that? Well, I, I just I turned 70, and that's old enough. <laughs> and I, I, I taught for 30 years, and that's long enough. So basically, I want to try uh, living a, a simpler life and just writing. Uh, what I'd done for the past 30 years was go up to Cambridge every September and then come back to Florida every December. And it's just an awful lot of packing and unpacking and uh, traveling and just more complicated life than I want to live, basically. Because I enjoy teaching, uh, and I think I'm okay at it. but. Uh, I write, I've always been mainly a writer who just taught as a sort of a hobby. And I don't need hobbies so much as time right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, uh, we've had Juno Diaz on the show twice, oh, and yeah. he also teaches yeah. at MIT. Have you guys, have your paths crossed there? Oh, yeah, yeah. We have dinner together every now and then and go to movies. Juno loves movies, and so do I. And we, you know, when we can, we uh, we hang out and, He's a lot of fun to play with. Yeah, yeah. He's, he lives more uh, in New York now than, or he's both in New York and Cambridge, so I never know when I can get him. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and you mentioned that you're going to, like, what, now that you're um, you're going to be writing full-time, I guess, do you have uh, projects you have in mind, or do you have anything in the works? Yeah, I'm, I'm working on a complex uh, science fiction novel now, which uh, is taking all of my time and effort, uh, I haven't even sent in a, a proposal for my next novel yet. But uh, I don't have any, uh, I've never had any trouble coming up with ideas, and I, you know, for many, many years I haven't had any trouble getting contracts for the books that I want to write. So basically I've just, uh, you know, I'll work on this one for another six months or so, and then I'll work up a proposal for the next one, and they overlap. So I turn in a manuscript and basically rest for a week or two and then start writing the next one. That's been my pattern since the 70s. Mm-hmm. 
All right. Well, great. I mean, so we're definitely looking forward to seeing whatever you come up with. Well, and, thanks. And uh, I'd really like to thank you for uh, being on the show today. Oh, I'm glad to do it. Thank you for thinking of me. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Joe Haldeman for joining us on the show. And as we mentioned, for our panel today, we'll be discussing writers as characters. And we're joined by two guest geeks. So first up, we've got John Langan, who you may remember from our feature interview back in episode 13, and our panel on subterranean horrors back in episode 99. He teaches creative writing at SUNY New Paltz, and is the author of the novel House of Windows, and the short story collections Mr. Gaunt and Other Uneasy Encounters, and The Wide Carnivorous Sky and Other Monstrous Geographies. So John, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Dave. It's great to be here. And also joining us today is Kat Howard, who you may remember from our panel on sword fighting back in episode 78, and our panel on Choose Your Own Adventure books back in episode 93. Her short fiction appears in Lightspeed, Subterranean, and Oz Reimagined, and has been performed on NPR's Selected Shorts. So Kat, thanks for joining us. Thanks, David. It's good to be back. And so when I started thinking about this topic, it reminded me that a couple of years ago, I posted a uh, blog post where I listed some of my favorite movies about writers. And so I went back and looked at that, and I came across this thing that I, I said back then. I said that uh, books on writing always tell you to write what you know, but then they also tell you not to write about writers, because writers writing about writers is bad. Personally, I don't know what they're talking about. I'm fascinated by everything having to do with writers and writing. And personally, I love writers writing about writers. In fact, possibly the only thing that I would love more than writers writing about writers would be writers writing about writers writing about writers. And then uh, somebody commented and said, well, that's kind of what you did in this blog post. And, uh, and I said, hey, yeah, that is right. Yeah, that's true. I did. Go me. Um, but so the first thing I want to talk about is just like, I want your, you guys' opinion. Is it just my imagination that there's this sort of like feeling that writers writing about writers <laughs> is bad? Uh, have you experienced that? Uh, I don't know, Kat, what do you think about that? Well, I think there's the idea that it can very easily come over the edge into being sort of an author insertion character, you know. Oh, yes, of course, the writer is the hero and they're fabulous and they, you know, are wildly successful and defeat the Dark Lord and sleep with all of the hot people, you know, go writers. Um, I think, it, you know, it, if, you're, if you're not careful with it, it can become ridiculous. Yeah, I, I agree that there's... Um... There is that perception, I think, at least for a certain slice of the of the reading demographic, that somehow writers writing about writers, it's a cheat in some way, and and I think it's the the uh, assumption that you you are just looking in the mirror uh, as opposed to looking outside or you know outside yourself or or what have you at the wider world. I di- you know I disagree with it, but that's okay. Hmm. Well, what why do you disagree with it? Uh, well, I think writers are part of the world. I, I, I think that, and, and I think that there is um, writing as a thinking about it as a kind of a trope. Um, writing can become a way to think about lots of other things, uh, specifically creative things, specifically the the processes of creativity, which uh, of which writing obviously is one, but which can instant, extend in a lot of, of different directions. And also, I, I think, as with anything, I think the test is really um, in the doing. So, you know, how many of Stephen King's novels have been about writers? A, a lot. All the way back to, to Salem's Lot. A lot of people forget that, that the, the guy who's essentially the, the hero of Salem's Lot is a, is a writer. Uh, and, of course, Jack Torrance in The Shining is a, is a writer. Um, but you, it's interesting. You don't hear people saying, oh, The Shining, another book about a writer. They go, <laughs> oh, my God, The Shining, what a brilliant, 
you know, what a, what a brilliant novel. Similarly, when King comes, uh, come forward and, and, and when King writes, uh, say, Misery or, uh, or The Dark Half, uh, or Secret Window, Secret Garden, uh, the, the sort of loose kind of thematic trilogy, um, what he's saying there about creativity and obsession specifically and the different sides of a, of, of a single person's personality or, or experience, uh, all of that stuff is great. All of that stuff is fascinating. Well, I mean, but I think the reason that people don't think of The Shining as a story about a writer is because he does very little writing in the <laughs> in the story, right? And, uh, and many of King's uh, characters are writers, like the the um, the protagonist of Cell, I think, is a comic book writer. But it's very incidental to the story. They could just almost just as easily be any be something else. Uh, whereas a story like Misery, it's it's absolutely uh, essential to the story that it's about a writer, you know? Right, right. Um, but I don't know, Kat. What do you what do you think about I mean, you, you said you said that you agree that there is this perception that writing about writers is bad. Do you think that? I mean, how do you feel about it, though, yourself? You know, myself, I think that it's just as valid a choice as any other type of character that you might put in there, as long as it serves the story. It's the right thing. I mean, my academic training is as a medievalist, and if you look at you know that sort of writing, if you look at you know Chaucer, Chaucer takes himself on the Canterbury Tales. He's not just writing it. He's a character there. He's the one who's saying, oh, yeah, we went on this pilgrimage, and then we decided that we were going to tell a bunch of stories, and now I'm going to tell you about all of these cool stories that we told. You know, Virgil himself is the one who goes to hell and purgatory and heaven during the Divine Comedy. There is a long tradition of writers as writers showing up in their own work because it lended that work the authority it came with the idea of writing. And so I think that there are places where it can absolutely serve the story, give it a reason for being written. Uh, did you mean to say Dante? I did mean to say Dante. I said Virgil, didn't I? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, Virgil, also a writer. Also. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, excuse me. I did mean to say Dante's Divine Comedy. Yeah. Um, it's interesting, though. I mean, I mean, we're all fairly uh, friendly to the idea of writers writing books about writers. But when I went through my thousand plus books on book reads that I've read, I, I couldn't find hardly any except for books by Stephen King that were about writers. And I don't know if that reflects my reading taste or, or what, but how many actual books other than Stephen King can you think of that use writers as fictional characters in, in sort of like to stick to um, fantasy and science fiction and horror? Well, I, I think when you look at, I, I mean, okay, you know, when you look at um, Peter Straub's work, um, Ghost Story, um, which is all about the telling of ghost stories. Uh, one of the central characters in that, uh, there's a group of older men who are dealing with this supernatural element, and then there's a, a younger man uh, who comes into the uh, into their fraternity, I suppose, to assist in the struggle and take part in the struggle. And and he's a writer of supernatural stories. And there's um, Thematically speaking, Straub sets up all kinds of resonances there. And then later in, um, in the Blue Rose trilogy, especially in the throat, the concluding, uh, novel of that sequence, uh, the character Tim Underhill, uh, who showed up in a number of Straub's novels, um, he's a writer. He's, he, he's extremely important to, as a writer, he's been trying to understand the history of his hometown, which involves a lot of darkness and murder. And Straub, in a couple of subsequent novels, uh, in which Underhill features Lost Boy, Lost Girl, and especially, uh, the sequel to Lost Boy, Lost Girl, a novel called, uh, In the Night Room, 
uh, Straub takes, I, I think in the Night Room in particular, he takes that notion of fictional creation and trying to imagine what it's like to be a character inside a novel. Um, when you think about the sudden uh, leaps that you have in a novel uh, as a reader, imagine if you were the character experiencing that. I mean, I actually think this is, some of this reminded me of, uh, of Cat Story, uh, a life in fiction. So, you know, what would it be like to, to be in a novel where the writer gets stuck and uh, suddenly you're in this white room with all these statues? Straub deals with similar stuff there. Um, so uh, again, uh, and it's interesting, obviously, that, that King and Straub are friends and their work responds to uh, to one another's creations. Uh, well, I mean, do you think that, is there something in particular about horror that lends itself to stories about writers? You know, it, it's funny, there, there have been <sighs> horror in the 20th century, and maybe going into the 21st has been really textual in the sense of, you know, go back to Lovecraft and the Necronomicon, you know, the horrific um, and, and the library, the library of uh, imagined books that spawned uh, the, the uh, unspeakable cults. What is it? No. Yeah. Unspeakable cults, I think, or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Un ausspruchen Kulten. Uh, yeah. <laughs> there's, there's, you know, <laughs> that's a great title, isn't hmm. it? Uh, everything's better in German. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> There's uh, um, th- th- there's a way in which horror in the in the 20th century, and I think it has to do actually with anxieties about knowledge and and what have you, but it is really in that certainly in that Lovecraftian tradition, which seems to be really in the ascendancy um, now. You know, for the last maybe 10 years or something, it's really, uh, I guess, because Lovecraft had his Library of America edition and all that sort of stuff, but. The, the notion of evil books and, and what have you. And that may also play into something that's, I don't know if it's uniquely American, that American anxiety about knowledge and, and what have you that you, you see manifest in the, the Tea Party and, and what have you. Um, but it seems to me that Lovecraft really textualizes his, uh, his horrors. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see, Kat, I mean, John just mentioned your, your short story. Uh, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. It's uh, a life in fiction, which was originally published in the anthology stories, um, edited by Neil Gaiman and Al Antonio. And um, I had, uh, I, it was it was really early. This is my first published story. It was the first short story that I had tried to write after coming back from Clarion. Um, and I wrote it um, because the two longer projects that I was working on at the time, um, one of which was my dissertation. So it was a pretty serious, unbreakable deadline sort of project had stalled out on me. And I had asked a friend, you know, oh my God, what do I do? Am I broken? What is wrong with me? Words don't come out anymore. And they were like, well, just put everything else away and see what else, you know, see the new thing that pops up into your head. And that happened to be the new thing that popped up into my head. Mm-hmm. And I mean, what I thought was so interesting about that story is that it's a story about a writer, but it's not told from the point of view of the writer. It's told from the point of view of the um, the woman that he uses for inspiration and how being the uh, object of his uh, sort of creative attention uh, affects her in a negative way. And I don't, I couldn't think of another story that I've ever seen that done before in. Well, the the inspiration from it came from there's a. Um... I had been reading about Queen Elizabeth I, um, and there were multiple attempts to depose her um, during her reign. And at one point, one of the uh, one of the attempts, 
involved the performance of a production of Shakespeare's play, Richard II, um, because there is a scene in that play that involves the deposition of the king. It was a pretty controversial thing, and it's an apocryphal story, um, but it's a pretty good one, that when Elizabeth heard of this, her response was, I am Richard II, know ye not that? Um, you know, saying that, you know, yeah, of course I know why they're putting on this play. It's because they want, you know, they're trying to show me, oh, look, we can do this to the king. And it just really made me think, well, what if you really were? What if you really were the character in someone else's story? What happens? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so, and it's a, it's also there's a, a magical element that when when this author uses her in his in his fiction, she sort of disappears from her everyday life and uh, and and is changed by, um, you know, by his attentions. Because I would think that you would have to. I mean, we we joke all the time about writers stealing things. You know, you 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 borrow somebody's walk, you borrow somebody's phrase, you borrow somebody's you know personal tics, and you put them in there in your characters, but. You know, so it's sort of a a logical, well, what if those things don't come back? You know, what if you take them away from the person and and then they're just gone? They they show up in your fiction and they they don't get to have those things in the real world anymore, Mm -hmm. which is kind of, you know, kind of terrifying. It it makes being amused sound a lot less enticing. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, and and it's an excellent story. People can go read it online um, in Apex Magazine. Um. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, but so, so like I said, I had trouble coming up with a, a ton of uh, fiction about writers in, in the fantasy and science fiction genre, but I had no trouble coming up with tons and tons of movies about writers. And I wonder, is, is a film sort of one degree removed from, uh, from a, a novel that it's, uh, it feels less uh, uh, self-indulgent or incestuous or something to, to make a movie about a novelist? It's an interesting question because, you know, one of my favorite guilty pleasure TV shows is Castle. Um, <laughs> and, I mean, there's the life. Boy, I wish I had that writer's life. <laughs> I, mean, I just want his you know, apartment. <laughs> oh, yeah. His, well, his apartment and, and, you know, I mean, just all the all the stuff in it. And, you know, it's it's this perception of the writer as movie star, as rock star, as just, you know, a, a celebrity that uh, that it's just impossible. Well, not impossible, obviously, but it's difficult to imagine. Um, I'm flattered, you know, by the idea that, oh, a writer would have unique insight and would enable him to solve crimes and that sort of stuff, you know, into human motivations and, and what have you. Um, and indeed, when I watch the show, I do try to solve the crime. I'm like, okay, wait a minute. Uh, except I never get it right. So, um, <laughs> but I, I, I think that a lot of the, um, a lot of the film representations that I've seen of writers, don't strike me as, um, they, they, I don't know, they, they don't strike me as particularly realistic at all, uh, at least to my own experience and, and to those of the, the, the writers I know. Uh, it just strikes me as there's a fascination about them, but it's not really that exciting to put someone on screen just writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it, uh, you have to, they have to solve crimes, you know, or, or, um, they have to be involved in a, in a torrid affair with somebody. I, I mean, I see that, I, I guess I've seen that happening. I'd have to think a little bit about specific examples of it, but one of the things I've, I've noticed about, um, it was a, a movie about T.S. Eliot several years ago called Tom and Viv with, um, Willem Dafoe was playing T.S. Eliot. And 
it attempted to sort of explain all of his poetry through the wasteland, um, through the lens of his first marriage. And, and I think that, that's something I find kind of interesting, but also in a way kind of discouraging. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because I think, is that, is that all it's really about is just, well, you had a bad relationship, a bad marriage, whatever, and then you wrote a novel or a poem or, or what have you. Yeah, that, that's definitely my number one frustration with stories about writers is that they always turn them into mostly love stories or, or something other than stories about writer, about writing. And, um, I mean, my probably, I mean, one example that comes to mind for me is Shadowlands, which is this movie about C.S. Lewis. And there's, there's one scene in the movie where they kind of talk, actually, there, there's a couple of pretty good scenes in the movie now that I think about it where they kind of talk about books, but mostly it's, it's a, a love story. And, uh, I wish someone would make a story that was just about, you know, a writer dreaming up an idea and, you know, working out the plot and, you know, rewriting some sentences in a really good way. And I don't know if anyone would watch it except, uh, you know, a very small group of people. But, you know, that's what really interests me about writers is the writing. And, you know, yeah, it frustrates me that the writing never actually gets shown. Well, I think it's a lot of it is what John said earlier. Is there, there needs to be an angle that makes it looks like a romance or makes it look like being a rock star or makes it look interesting because like I think if you know if someone, were to, if someone were to put a film camera in my apartment they would see a lot of like scratching out of paper and my hands fisted in my hair and you know wandering around looking for anything I can do other than figure out what happens next in the plot maybe I could vacuum again for the 400th time you know rather than it's it's not inherently an exciting activity to watch someone putting words on the page. It's such an in-your-head sort of thing that we need to, if we're going to dramatize it, we need to bring it out with some other kind of lens. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Maybe they can make a movie about, I mean, there's, you know, pairs of writers who collaborate on a novel and they could talk about their ideas with each other. I don't know. I think there's some way to do it. I mean, because that's what we do on this podcast, right, is we talk to writers about their ideas and stuff. And I think it's totally fascinating. I, other people might disagree, but... <laughs> Yeah, I think it could well, be done. I, I think, you know, it's interesting because, of, I mean, what's interesting, okay, is, is for me to think about a film like um, A Beautiful Mind, you know, where they tried mm -hmm. in a very minor way to show, um, I can't think of the name of the guy that Russell Crowe played, but to, to show the way that, that his mind worked, to show the way that he um, came up with his various mathematical theorem, game theory, and, and all this sort of stuff. And I, I sometimes think that if you took that approach, where so basically you know you you made a lot of use of special effects but in a in a more interesting way so that you know the you saw the sentences you saw them being rearranged um yeah i suppose you could dramatize some of what the writer is writing you know and and uh you know it seems to me it's it's been a long long time since i've seen amadeus i, I thought there were moments in amadeus where the with the film anyway where where they managed to to get a little bit of that that there was a scene where there's a woman who's screaming at Mozart, and the next thing you know, you see the aria of, of one of his operas, and, and it's the same note um, <laughs> that, that's, you know, and you realize, ah, okay, so, so for this guy, everything was fodder for his art. Mm -hmm. um, well, yeah, I mean, what do you guys think about the way that writers' personalities are portrayed in, in movies? Because it seems like... Uh, I guess maybe there's, with the exception of writers who are, as, who are portrayed as sort of super cool rock stars, uh, most writers in movies are portrayed as sort of extremely insecure, morose people. 
And uh, I mean, there certainly are writers who are morose, but uh, I mean, I know a lot of writers and they seem to have a wi as wide a range of personalities as any other uh, occupation. And John Langan, for example, is one of the most uh, gregarious people I know. And why don't we ever have, why don't we have a movie about John Langan that shows just how gregarious he is? I like this idea and I could be played by some attractive young man. <laughs> it's exactly um, well, I, I think, yeah, it's, it's a, it, that ties in, I think, to ideas, cultural ideas of what the writer is like, of what, especially what a serious writer is like. Um, it's funny, as we've been talking, with, uh, thinking, you know, running through films in my head and thinking about the Coen brothers, Barton Fink, which uh, is a kind of a fantasia. I don't know if you could, you can't really call it a fantasy exactly, but it certainly is not really realistic either. You know, there's a kind of grotesque element to it. And, and Barton Fink is absolutely that kind of morose writer, that kind of, but also kind of self-involved and, and self-important. Um, and, and Faulkner shows up under another name uh, in the film as, as a, you know, a drunk. For, it's interesting because for me, the real moment in that film is a moment where John Goodman is uh, playing terrifying as John Goodman can sometimes. And he's, he's, he's shotgunning people for some reason that escapes me right now. But he's, he's screaming, I'll show you the life of the mind. And <laughs> doing that. And, and <laughs> there's, um, it's the kind of, of scene where you think, oh, okay, <laughs> that's, that's interesting. That's, that's much more interesting than Mr. Morose. You know, that's, uh, uh, that's something. We could do something with that. <laughs> I think there's the, the desire to see, you know, it, it, it's like you said earlier with the desire to see the creative process through the lens of a romance or something like that is the desire to see the creator of the work as an extension of the work. Um, and so, you know, no, no one would believe your gregarious John Langan movie once they'd read, you know, the chewy, dark, articulate stories that he writes. They would never believe that somebody who was so friendly and outgoing would come up with these things. They're just, it, it couldn't be possible. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's such, it's such a weird thing that in real life, uh, all the horror, I, somebody said this once and I found it to be true that all the horror writers are really cheerful and all the comedy writers are really depressed. And, uh, <laughs> Movies, I've never seen a movie uh, depict that or anything like that. I would love to see a movie about just this ridiculously cheerful, you know, primary colored house horror writer. I think. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, you know, uh, Ramsey Campbell is a very sweet man. He's, he's, and he's very witty. And, and I understand the late Robert Block was like that, too. It was just a, a barrel of laughs. Um, and, yeah, certainly everybody that I've met, uh, uh, you know, Straub and, and what have you, they're wonderfully charming and urbane people who, uh, you know, the, the cliche, the, the sort of, you know, psycho cliche as well, they get it all out on the, on the page. Maybe, maybe that's true. Um, all right. Why don't we talk about movies about writers in which there's something magical happening about the writing itself? Um, I have a couple examples here. Uh, Delirious with John Candy, uh, Midnight in Paris, uh, In the Mouth of Madness, Stranger Than Fiction. Uh, any of those uh, spark any reactions? Midnight in Paris, I mean, there's the kind of time slip fantasy, you know, of, of being able to go back and meet uh, meet up with Hemingway and, and all those guys in, in Paris. Um, and um, I, I don't know, I, I suppose I, it's, 
it's inter- it was interesting to me, I, I guess, when, when I was younger, I, I did a lot of work in, in modernist American literature. Um, and so it was interesting to see those guys portrayed. Um, and I think what was most interesting to me was that there's some way in which, you know, what you're seeing enacted is, is a kind of a process of, of influence and, but also kind of a longing for influence that, um, uh, who is Owen Wilson's character in that movie really longs for what he sees as this time, this time and this place and this space where art mattered, where what you were writing really, really mattered. Um, and in a perverse kind of way, a film like In the Mouth of Madness, which, um, you know, was this kind of derivative, was one of John Carpenter's last, um, I, I think, uh, good films. Um, but it's derivative of, you know, of Lovecraft. And it's that textual thing that, oh, we're going to publish a book that brings the Lovecraftian apocalypse upon the world. I mean, there's, there's a longing for something, a kind of dark parallel to that, you know, the, a longing for what we write to matter, <laughs> to matter to, to such an extent that it could change the world. No, but it's interesting, John, what you say about In the Mouth of Madness and fiction mattering, because I think it's really funny that one of the key plot points of that movie is it's about a book that drives people mad. And mm-hmm. it's not that big of a deal because not that many people read. But once it gets adapted into a movie, the whole world is going to go to hell. Oh, that's right. But I forgot about that. Yeah, you're right. Right. And of course, you're watching the movie of, of all of that, right? So, I mean, there's the, the implication that you may have been affected as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Deli- the, I mentioned this movie Delirious with John Candy. The only thing I remember about that movie it came out a long time ago, but it's about a writer and somehow uh, what he writes starts coming true. And the, the part I really remember from that movie is a guy comes in, they're having a party, and this guy comes in leading this train of deer with covered, covered in snow. And he says, I brought, I brought the cold deer. And John Candy says, no, beer, cold beer, it's a typo. <laughs> Well, you know, King King has a story uh, like that called Word Processor of the Gods, which was actually adapted for uh, Tales from the Dark Side back when that was on. And, um, yeah, it's about a guy who gets this magic word processor, a very old school word processor, um, and whatever he types happens. And it's, it's kind of unusual for King in that it's a story in which the guy uses that to make his life better, and there's there's really no repercussions. Um, you know, usually with King, if you change the world, change your life for the better, or you think you're changing it for the better, you've just, you know, you've completely screwed yourself. But in this case, no, it actually works out okay for him. So, um, and I suppose you could read that as a metaphor for how writing can make your life better. Actually, that just reminds me, speaking of Stephen King, of the story, The Ballad of the Flexible Bullet. Uh mm-hmm which I listened to that on audio. I've talked about this before, but I, I listened to that on audio and it just it just like freaks me out. It just like made me doubt reality more than any story I've ever read. Um, well, it's funny because that the name that King comes up with for those little creatures that live in your typewriter or that live in your head, the Fornets, you know, it's it's really taken over. That, that, that word, I, I find myself, when I'm teaching creative writing sometimes, Rather than talking about the muse, I'll talk about, well, you know, the Fournets are doing this or doing that. And my students just look at me and I say, oh, well, it was the story by <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the, the premise of this story is that you, you smear peanut butter on your typewriter and then at night these little kind of elves come out and, and you know, write your stories for you. Huh. I was like, I've got some peanut butter and I have a lot of deadlines and this is totally <laughs> Extra chunky or, or, you know, will Nutella work better, you know? 
oh, see, good idea. You know, depending on what you put on your keyboard as sacrifice, you get better ghost Right, tricks. better results, right? You just put like a sort of generic peanut butter on it. <laughs> Forget it. <laughs> Okay, so um, you know, just speaking of uh, writer, you know, writing stuff and having it come true, there was this recent movie. I didn't see it, but it was called Ruby Sparks, and it's about a writer, and he writes sort of a he writes he's writing a book, I think, about sort of his dream girl, and then she just appears in his apartment, and she's suddenly real. And uh, I don't know. That just kind of makes me think of. It seems like so often the writer is a uh, a male, and you know, and sort of sort of like his fantasies come true. Um, and stuff like that. And I just wonder, like, what do you guys think about the way that uh, movies tend to portray men as writers? And what do you think about the way that they portray women as writers when, when that does happen? There's a lot of, like, where do you even begin with that question? Right. Well, they're, because they're always, I mean, they're, they're, they're usually um, white, affluent, you know, um, youngish or at least handsome men. And, uh, the the idea I, I mean you know you think about like like these movies that we've talked about where there's kind of the trans you know the, the midnight in Paris or something like that you know it would have been interesting um, uh, and I, I enjoyed midnight in Paris no harm to the movie but it would have been interesting if it hadn't been Owen Wilson you know if it had been his wife who's looking for the to to go back and meet up with with uh, Hemingway and Fitzgerald and all these people or or if it had been um, uh, a young African American man or woman who's looking to to go and meet up with these guys. That um, it's it's funny, you know. Even without changing most of the the script, just that visual change would have been would have made for a very interesting film. Would it would have made for some really interesting resonances in the film? I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the only the only film that I can even think of hearing of, and I haven't seen it. Um, that involves, you know, sort of a, a woman as writer character is the film Young Adult with Charlize Theron in, but they, they, from what I understand, they basically turn her into a sociopath who can't even dress herself. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is sort of a problem. <laughs> Wasn't there one with, um, uh, in terms of, I mean, I mean, speaking of fantasy films, what was the film with uh, Emma Thompson plays the writer? And Stranger Than Fiction. Up. What was it called? Stranger Than Fiction, that's right. Right, right, okay, right, okay, so what's, okay. And so there, um, although the, there's, I guess it's a, it, it's interesting, I mean, there, the, the dynamics of that become kind of interesting because of, of course, you know, she's the serious actress, Will Farrell is the, is the comic actor, um, she's, she's God, but even in that film, as I recall, she's having a debate with her editor, um, is it Dustin Hoffman? About proper, what's the, gonna be the proper ending for this book? You know, comedy or tragedy, and I mean, it's it's a film that wants to be about something, I guess. Um, so, so there's, I, I mean, um, you get Emma Thompson, who interestingly is playing another writer, right? I mean, she's playing P.L. Travers in this, uh, the Disney. Uh, what's the kindest way to put it? Saving Mr. Banks. Yeah, I was just thinking, you know, that, that that it's it's. I mean, I taught Mary Poppins a couple of summers ago, and and. It strikes me, you know, that this is a, a revision. I, I mean, it's a revisionist take on what happened, you know, at least in his portrayal of Travers. I, I, she was not happy with Mary Poppins. I think she was, from her perspective, quite right not to be happy with Mary Poppins and was never happy with Mary Poppins. And, uh, instead she's 
what's interesting about the film from uh, I, I feel like I feel terrible saying from what I understand because I haven't seen this film either. <laughs> I sound like one of my students, you know. I haven't read the book, but here's what I think. <laughs> uh, but nonetheless, um she's presented as this sort of damaged soul who just needs her book to be adapted for the big screen so that she can know peace in some weird way, you know, the magic of Disney. Um, and that strikes me actually as hugely problematic in a, in a, all sorts of ways. Um, I think Harlan Ellison, uh, posted some kind of, uh, discussion <laughs> of, of, um, of this and the, and the problem with this and, and, uh, I key, I need to watch it, but I would guess that, that I'll probably be very much in agreement with, uh, with Harlan in this particular case. Well, and I think to go back just to the fact that it's Emma Thompson in both of these films is also interesting on the sort of meta level because she's also a writer herself. She wrote the screenplay for Sense and Sensibility. That's uh, true. And she won and the Oscar for it. Won the Oscar it. for it. So, you know, it's clearly a skilled writer. And is able to then, you know, what, so what does that mean? You know, do we, do we think of her that way? Do we think of her that way on the screen? Mm-hmm. Uh, the only other movies I can think of to have women writers are Romancing the Stone and Swimming Pool. I don't know if anyone ever saw either of those. I have seen Romancing the Stone, but not, at least I don't think I've seen Swimming Pool. It's, uh, it doesn't bring it down. I saw Romancing the Stone a long time ago, but yeah, I, I'm not sure what Swimming Pool is. Uh, okay, Swimming Pool, um, it's about a mystery writer, and she's uh, has writer's block, which seems like is the way 90% of, 90 plus percent of movies about writers start out. And her editor offers her the use of his house in the south of France, uh, when thinking maybe it'll inspire her. And while she's there, his rebellious teenage daughter, or I don't know, if maybe young 20s, I'm not sure, daughter swings by, uh, un- sort of drops by unannounced. And the women, the two women have kind of a um, contentious relationship at first because the girl wants to party and this writer is trying to write. Uh, and it sort of goes from there. Uh, I actually kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of fond of that movie. So eventually I take it they both sort of meet in the middle. The, the, the writer learns to loosen up and the girl learns to become more serious. And, and, you know, it's like sort of thesis, antithesis, synthesis, that kind of thing. No, that's not quite the direction it goes in. I mean, you know, it t- takes a bit of a mystery, mystery, you know, crime turn. Oh, right. Okay. Well, maybe that would be better then. Who knows? I think as far as romancing the stone goes, I, I mean, there's a, there's a, a kind of a meta thing there, isn't there? I mean, it was, um, it was during that kind of really interesting phase in Kathleen Turner's career where, you know, she was quite, uh, it, it struck me at the time, anyway, that, that she had really carved out an identity for herself as a strong woman and as as an actress who was playing um, playing the the part of over and over again of, of strong women. And so, you know, you have her as this this romance writer who then is thrust into a romance with Michael Douglas, who's sort of Indiana Jones, but kind of Indiana Jones wannabe because he's also kind of sleazy and not really completely competent either. Um, and I, I don't know the the there was a there was a kind of a meta thing going on within the story, and that she's thrust into the kind of story that she writes. Um, all right. Well, what do you guys think about movies that are sort of biopics about writers, uh, particularly fantasy writers? Uh, a couple like that come to mind for me would be uh, Finding Neverland about Jan Barry, who wrote Peter Pan, The Whole Wide World about um, well, now I'm blanking on the uh, Robert, Robert Howard. Howard. 
yeah. uh, who wrote uh, Conan the Barbarian. And uh, I mentioned Shadowlands about C.S. Lewis. Uh, I guess you, well, it's a bit of a stretch to call Shakespeare in Love a biopic, but uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know. What do you guys, what do you guys think about the way these sort of fantasy type authors are, are portrayed uh, in film? I don't know. You know, I've seen two of those. I've seen um, Finding Neverland, and I genuinely love Shakespeare in Love for all of it. Even though it has flaws, I think it's just fun. It's fun to watch. Um, I would never look to it for truth about Shakespeare, but <laughs> I tend to look for my absolute truths on film anyway. So, um, I don't know. I, in, in both of those cases, my interest in watching the film had very little to do with the fact that there were writers involved. It was more, oh, I like these people's stories. You know, so I want to see how these movies treat their stories rather than how they treat the writers as characters, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was an interesting, you know, it's, it's, it's the, that variance on that question that everyone gets asked and everyone rolls their eyes at, you know, where do you get your ideas from? And do I think that either of these films sort of realistically represented the idea of where, you know, Barry or Shakespeare got their ideas from? Probably no. I'd be shocked if they were. But it's fun to watch the narrative created around that. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when Finding Neverlands came out, uh, I was talking to Gordon Van Gelder about it, and he said th- something I thought was really interesting, because in real life, um, the, the basic story uh, uh, is that J.M. Barry was, as, as far as I understand, basically asexual. And he befriended this family where the husband had died. And because um, because J.M. Barry was sort of he was always he was sort of a perpetual child, kind of like Peter Pan. Right. And actually ended up adopting the, the boys um, in the end, I think. Um, but but Gordon was saying that when you cast Johnny Depp in that part, that he's just so attractive and so sexy that, it you know, it completely you know makes it seem like a romance between him and the mother, mm-hmm. uh, you know, no matter what actually happens uh, in the script, you know. Yeah, I, I want to say that, that I'd, I'd have to go, like, you know, fact check this, but I, I think that the father of the family that he befriended was actually still alive when he befriended them. And then the father died not long after. Um, and Barry did, I think, if he didn't adopt the boys, he was at least their, their sort of legal guardian, and he did do his best to take care of them. But they came to, were there four or five boys? And I, I want to say that they at least a couple of them came to to really tragic ends. And I, I don't think there's any, I don't think it was Barry's uh, fault that they, I don't think you could attribute that to Barry having uh, parented them badly, guarded them badly, what have you. But just they, they came to, to sort of tragic ends, which, um, yeah, the, the, the film doesn't get at that. The film, I think by having Kate Winslet and Johnny Depp as your leads, of course, and, and by removing the husband, there is this romance that's built into the the narrative. Um, although, and, and and you know, two things. I guess one is is that so what the you know what the narrative becomes of the film is about then is you know, the importance of imagination. And at the end, you know, Barry Johnny Depp getting the youngest boy to sort of see his mother alive in his memory and so hold on to her that way. So it's the saving power of imagination. Um, I, I will say though that there's a the, the scene in that film where they bring the production of Peter Pan into the house uh, so that the dying mother can see it. 
And she then rises and walks out of the house uh, into Neverland, you know, into death. Um, I still get shivers thinking about that scene. I think so many films that deal with a lot of this material shy away from death uh, and shy away from the, I just want to call it the depth of death or something like that. You know, it's an, and, and that was something that was uh, one moment that was just mysterious and beautiful and, and also, also tragic and frightening. Hmm. I mean, speaking of, uh, of the realism of Shakespeare and love, uh, that just reminds me, you know, when I was, uh, when I was at USC, uh, one of the guys who wrote that movie came and spoke to my class and he said that, uh, he had been doing research and uh, had come across a contract, a sort of an actor's contract from Elizabethan England because, or uh, maybe it was the writer. Or something. So I think the writer had been sued um, because he hadn't written the plays that he was contracted to write. And his excuse was that the, you know, the city had been hit by plague and that had disrupted his writing. And so this had gone to trial. And, and, and as the preserved in the records of this trial was the contract that the, the writer had had and maybe the actors had had. And this writer said that he, look, he looked over this contract and said, you know, I've seen this contract before. This is basically the same contract I had to sign. And that, you know, a lot of the ways that show business works are surprisingly consistent across right, the centuries. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's, it's funny, too, because, I, I mean, it, it strikes me as, as, as we're talking that, you know, stories about Shakespeare, um, and, and here we could even, you know, veer back in the direction of novels and stories to a certain extent. That there's been a ton of stuff written about Shakespeare. I mean, whether, um, yes, Shakespeare in Love, which, which is very well, you know, a very well written film. Anthony Burgess, uh, what was his novel? The Dead Man in Deptford, I think. Yeah. Uh, which was uh, Shakespeare Marlo. and Marlowe. And, um, obviously Neil Gaiman made use of, of Shakespeare a couple of times, uh, in, in the Sandman comics. Um, and that I find kind of interesting. Dickens has shown up. I mean, there was that Dan Simmons novel, Drood, which I had some issues with, but Dickens has, has shown up as well. Like, uh, what do you call it? The Doctor Who episode. Um, he, uh, he has a part. So there was, what's interesting, I, I guess, is that there are certain writers that we seem to come back to. And I, I guess because in, in the case of someone like Shakespeare, he has such a tremendous impact on us, but we don't feel we know enough about his life. Who was this guy? Who was the guy who wrote all this stuff? And, and, um, there may be something, um, th- there may be something to think about there too. You know, that there have also been narratives about Poe. Um, oh my God, who is the guy who could write such stuff? As mm-hmm. the sort of Lovecraftian resurgence I was, I was talking about earlier has happened. Lovecraft has any number of, of Lovecraft stories with Lovecraft as a character in them. Um, and, uh, sometimes the hero, actually usually the hero fighting off the tentacled monsters. Um, but it, it, it that may be something, maybe it's a sort of subset or something like that, but there are certain writers that we keep coming back to, it seems to me. Um, and in some cases, I guess it's because we don't know enough about them. In other cases, Maybe even in Poe's case, in Lovecraft's case, we really don't know enough. Why would you create this? Why would you create this stuff? So we 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 keep inventing these fictions, and and this is a place where fantasy, I suppose, or the fantastic writ large, can be of real use to us because it it helps us to um to to approach their work sort of metaphorically. Oh well, Shakespeare makes the deal with 
Morpheus in, in Gaiman's vision of things, and, and that allows certain old stories to make their way back into into the into circulation again and keep those old stories alive. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, John, you mentioned Poe, and uh, you sent us your uh, the story of yours from the Wide Carnivorous Sky. I only got a chance to read the first couple of pages of it, but it is somehow about Poe, right? Do you want to talk about that story? <laughs> yes. Um, it was um, a story that I wrote for an anthology that Ellen Datlow put together a few years ago called Poe, uh, and the idea was it was to, to coincide with Poe's uh, the centenary of his birth, and she just told us all, everyone who wanted to contribute, she told to pick a story and uh, one of Poe's stories and riff on that story in some way. She didn't just want an updating of the story. Uh, she wanted something else. And I can still see, I was in a bar at ReaderCon when she was telling me about this, and immediately I knew that I was going to write about the Mask of the Red Death mm. because when I was an undergraduate, I had read that story in, in my Honors English 2 class, and it's a story in which there's a bunch of revelers. They're hiding out from the Red Death, this horrific plague in the outer world. They're in this monastery, and the monastery has all these different colored rooms in it. And my professor had said to us, uh, okay, so what I want you guys to do in your homework tonight is to look at that color scheme and figure out what it means. So we came in the next day, and this was you know, back in the age of chalkboards, and he just filled the chalkboard with this is what we thought the progression of colors meant. And at the end of the class, we all said to him, you know, well, what does it mean? And he said, I don't know. <laughs> um, and uh, <laughs> I don't know, but I just killed 55 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> That's the goal of any good teacher. And um, so uh, that stuck with me that, oh, I'm going to write a story that talks about, you know, well, what does it really mean? What is the, what is the true meaning of that? And that led me into Poe's biography and inventing stuff about his life and, and what have you. And um, there are gaps in Poe's life, you know, most famously concerning his mysterious death. You know, he shows up in Baltimore delirious and, and, uh, literally in the gutter in someone else's clothes and dies uh, shortly thereafter. Um, and so um, there was a great deal, it seemed to me, there was a great deal that could be done with that. There was a, there was a, a great deal with, um, with the, the sort of mysterious end of his life and some of the facts of his earlier life, especially the, the famous or the infamous marriage to his cousin, um, that I thought you could, uh, as, as a, as a horror writer, you could riff on in, in interesting ways. And, um, you know, the, <laughs> it took on something of the hoax, which of course Poe was also very famous for. And I created a book that Poe had read and blah, blah, blah. And I've had a few emails from people saying to me, man, I thought that book was real. I went to the, you know, I Googled it to try to find a copy of it and to try to find to find out more about the writer that wrote it and all this kind of stuff. And and I, I, I have to admit to feeling a little, you know, self satisfied twinge at that because the ah Poe would approve. I've I've hoaxed them. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> I mean, John, you also had this story I read years ago and it's about a, a, a undergraduate in a creative writing class and he's turned in this story about um, you know, someone's ripped his literally ripped his heart out. And as I remember it, there's this uh, instructor who's trying to get him not to, to write more social realism kind of stuff. And it suggested maybe this teacher is a some sort of supernatural monster or something. Um, can you talk about that story? Uh, sure, sure. It's a story called Tutorial, which was my third published story. 
it was a very angry story. It, it came about because I had tried to, I'd, I'd sent my, my second story to a magazine which rejected it and which, uh, the editor sent me a note telling me I needed to read Strunk and White. <laughs> uh, and, uh, I just saw red. <laughs> out of, as only a young, you know, indignant as only a young writer, young self-important writer can be indignant. And, um, I resolved that I would write this kind of polemical story in which Strunk and White became this instrument of oppression and blah, blah, blah. So it's, it's not a, in some ways I think I'm, I'm never sure how successful the story is because I, I sometimes think it's a little too polemical. It's, it's about a guy who has had to deal with a creative writing teacher who's, is based on a, a teacher, an old, old, years and years ago. Uh, when I was an undergrad, the, one of the people who was teaching the creative writing program at my college was, uh, was notoriously, um, suspect of anything that was not mimetic naturalism, as, as Salman Rushdie calls it, um, and mimetic naturalism of a very sort of narrow stripe, which, um, which I thought was really depressing at the time, and I, I still kind of do. So, uh, so yeah, it's about a guy who's had to deal with that teacher and who's sent to the tutoring center, uh, and the tutoring center is, is ultimately revealed to be this, you know, sort of infernal collective, um, <laughs> which is, is trying very hard to get this guy to write what he's supposed to write, not to, um, you can write fantasy, but it better be cookie cutter fantasy. Um, don't, you know, don't write this weird stuff that makes people think or, or shakes them up. And, you know, it feels in retrospect, like 10 years later, it feels a little ham-fisted to me. At the same time, weirdly enough, I've gotten more, I got an email from a guy a couple of months ago who uh, said to me, oh, I just ran across this story, and, and I just got to tell you, that was my entire graduate writing experience. <laughs> and I thought, oh, that's so sad. But, you know, my, it's funny, I mean, just as a tangent, because it, it's my impression that Creative writing programs, ironically, have remained, a lot of them have remained more conservative than, say, literature programs. As I see in like a lot of literature programs across the country, there really is a move to look at other kinds of literature than the traditional canonical forms of literature. But it seems to me from story after story after story that people tell me about creative writing programs that that's the place where a very particular and, and yeah, kind of narrow canonical view of, of what constitutes a good story and what have you still really continues to hold sway. So, so yeah, the story has a certain, uh, a certain resonance that way. Um, although I also remember one of the early reviews of the story saying, oh, another story about writers and their problems. Who wants to read this? <laughs> um, actually, I mean, speaking of, um, sort of literal-minded mimetic realism kind of stuff. I mean, one of my pet peeves about stories about writers is that so often the formula is there's a person who has writer's block, and then some crazy adventure happens to them. And then at the end, they write the story of what just happened to them. And everyone says, you're a genius, you know. And it just, this always kind of, I mean, it's, it's not the worst thing in the world, but it just kind of bothers me always because it suggests that the only way to write a good story is to have an amazing adventure and then just to write exactly what just happened to you. And it totally discounts the role of imagination uh, in in writing fiction. Yeah, well, I think it's frustrating, as you said, because it it leads into this idea that it's sort of the the most toxic form of that write what you know thing that that we all get told, and that 
certainly those of us who work in any non-memetic genre completely ignore. Um, because it is, it's the, the idea that, you know, oh, well, the only way that you can solve your problem as a writer is by getting out of your house and getting out of your normal routine and going off and, have, you know, doing something weird and then, yeah, go home and, and write that down and that'll be perfect. And so, you know, clearly, you know, it's not hard to write. You just need to figure out how to, invent, how to have adventures. Um, and sadly, at least in my experience, it doesn't work that way. Maybe I'm having the wrong adventures. <laughs> I don't know, I'm thinking I need to talk to my wife and say, honey, I need to go have some adventures. <laughs> She'd be fine with that. Yeah. <laughs> say, Let me know how that works for you. Yeah, <laughs> well, and it, there's also just something a little bit self-aggrandizing about it because someone wrote this story about, right. about what a great story this would make, right? So it's kind of like, you know, I don't know. It's like, get over yourself, you know. It was okay. I mean, like, okay, the events we just saw, that was okay, but it's not great, you know. That's, that's my reaction a lot of the time. Well, I, I do think it follows. I, I mean, there's... There is a tradition that you find in the 20th century anyway. Um, I'm thinking about, you know, someone like Proust, say, with the, uh, Remembrance of Things Past, where, you know, the, you get a massive novel and the end of the massive novel is Proust sitting down to write the massive novel. Um, is that how it ends? I never made it there. Yeah. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Right? Yes, yes. <laughs> no, you really, oh, I can just hear the collective scream from all the listeners in the program saying, no, you've ruined Proust. <laughs> um, Hemingway um, does something similar with his Nick Adams stories, uh, where Nick wants to be a writer, and, and at the end, it's him thinking, I'm going to be a writer. Um, yeah, a portrait of the portrait of the artist as a young man. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, although Joyce complicates that in an interesting way in Ulysses by having Stephen Daedalus as a failed writer. And maybe there's a sense, maybe depending on who you talk to, maybe there's a sense at the end of Ulysses that, okay, now he's going to go home and write Ulysses, but but not necessarily. Um, but Kerouac does something similar. He's a, a wonderful short novel called The Subterraneans, and that's the last line of the novel, I go home and write this book. Um, and And so I think that's a kind of, narrative convention or, or yeah narrative convention i guess i would say narrational convention that i i think has been picked up and and maybe literalized in a, in a kind of a way um and i think also yeah you know it's I, I i never tire of saying to my students to whoever you know it's invent from what you know it's not write what you know because if you write what you know you write a story about your board life trying to write a story you can't write but if you invent from what you know you know, it's the what if, um, who was a theater sturgeon, ask the next question. Um, it's if you do that, then interesting things start to happen. Right. I think that, you know, we, we use those, those conventions that you talk about, you know, I go home and write this book and we, we see them flipped out the opposite way too. We see books starting out with, you know, I am the last one who remains to tell this story or, you know, I've come to the end of my life and I need to set these words down as if there needs to be some kind of a justification for the text outside of the text itself. And right, it, right, I, right. it can be an effective frame. It's like any literary device. It can be effective if you use, you know, correctly or properly or creatively or, you know, pick a better word than what I'm struggling for right now. But I also think, you know, a well-done story is its own justification. You don't need to start it out with somebody, you know, coming to the end of their life and saying, gosh, if I don't write this down now, no one will tell it. Just tell it. All right, cool. So uh, we should probably start wrapping this up. Why don't, why don't I just list some of these other uh, other movies I have on my list here and, and things that people mentioned? Um, 
And these are some of my favorites. Uh, you know, maybe we should do this again sometime and talk about some of these. But uh, Wonder Boys, Throw Mama from the Train, Adaptation, uh, Quills, Finding Forrester. Uh, uh, our friend Grady Hendrix mentions this movie. Um, it's called Written By. Uh, it's a Hong Kong movie, apparently. He says it's the most complicated, you know, story along these lines ever made. Um, so maybe people want to go check those out. Somebody mentioned there's this movie Limitless that came out uh, a year or so ago. About basically a writer and he buys a pill that is supposed to help him write his novel and it basically turn, makes him into a super genius. And then he has all sorts of other problems. Um, and somebody mentioned uh, David Gerald, often has characters named David, David Gerald, uh, who are writers in his work. Uh, I know he did a book called The Martian Child about a, a David Gerald like character who uh, adopts a son who then claims to be from Mars, which I think actually happens uh, in real life. Uh, I think the son did not actually turn out to be from Mars in the end. Uh, but uh, I don't know. Does anyone have any sort of uh, any final words about any of those uh, books or movies? Yeah, I mean, I mean Finding Forrester is interesting. In a lot of ways, it's a conventional film um, about a, a kid who goes to find a sort of reclusive Salinger-esque genius uh, played by Sean Connery, um, whom it's hard to imagine ever being reclusive. But uh, <laughs> but the kid is, as I recall, the kid is a young African-American kid in uh, maybe a high school student in New York City. And that does lend the film something a, a little bit different, uh, a, a little bit that lends it a kind of a more, we were talking about this before, you know, it's it's actually... Okay, there's an example of of saying that, you know, a, a narrative that's saying that somebody else can be creative. <laughs> you know, somebody else can have a can have a creative experience as well. Um, Quill is the one about the Marquis de Sade, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, uh, Jeffrey with, Rush. Uh, Jeffrey Rush, yeah. Um, you know, um, the Marquis has been in vogue for a, for a while. You know, um, certain groups of literary theorists and and what have you, um, and uh, I don't know. I guess you can see him as this transgressive genius. That certainly, uh, I think, is the view that the movie wants to put forth of him. Um, I, I think my own personal feelings about him probably get in the way of me, you know, having a more more objective response to the film because it, it just, you know, the, uh, the there's a reason we get sadism from this guy's name, you know, and and. Uh, I know Angela Carter thought he was great and, and what have you. I just, he doesn't really work for me. So I don't know that the film, the, the film may have just had too many strikes against it for me, you know, from the get go. But that's just me and my hang ups. And, uh, Throw Mama from the Train, anyone? That's like an old favorite of mine. I've watched that many times. You know, I've only seen the I've only seen, uh, Hitchcock, Strangers on a Train, which that book is, which with Throw Mama from a Train is, uh, whatever, a reinvention of, a reinterpretation of, you know, uh, and, uh, really? only, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, well, let's just say, you know, we, we meet and we meet on a train, we don't know each other, what if I kill the person who bothers you the most, what if you kill a person who bothers me the most? And, and, <laughs> oh, gosh, that's uh, cool. And, and the Hitchcock film is brilliant, it's a wonderful, wonderful, horrifying film, uh, it's just great. No, you should you should see throw mom throw mama from the train. It's got some of the best uh, creative writing workshop scenes I've ever seen on film. But uh, basically, the premise is that Billy Crystal is uh, he he wrote this smash novel, except before it was published, his wife stole it, stole it and published it under her own name, and uh. so now he's seething with with anger and jealousy, and he's he's teaching a creative writing class and has a bunch of sort of misfit students, 
uh, many of whom turn in these really terrible uh, stories. And one of them is uh, Danny DeVito, who wants to be a mystery writer, but has absolutely no idea what he's doing. And so Billy Crystal try to kind of tries to tell him how to write a good mystery story. And in the course of this, suggests that he go see some Hitchcock movies. And so during a screening of Strangers on a Train, Danny DeVito gets it into his head that Billy Crystal is, is trying to subtly nudge him in the, in the direction of doing a swapping murders uh, okay. thing. And, and it goes from there. Okay. All right. Very meta. Yeah. It strikes me that, you know, it's, it's, we're, we're fascinated. You know, I, I, I do think, right, what Kat was saying before, right, the, the where do you get your ideas question, right? I, I mean, we, we remain fascinated by, especially when you have a, a writer who's written a lot of one kind of fiction. Oh, why, why do you write fantasy? Why do you write horror? Why do you write science fiction or mysteries or romance or whatever? We, we're fascinated by that. We're, fa- you know, we're fascinated by, um, intentionality uh d- despite you know the the literary criticism in the 20th century tries really hard to get away from the author and get away from intentionality and whatever but fundamentally it's something that we just remain really interested in why did you write this where do your ideas come from yeah well i'm still waiting for a uh, you know a, a film about a fantasy author who uh, which portrays that fantasy author as just really really cool and focuses on the process of writing a really good fantasy story so uh that's my dream movie, basically. Excellent. Yeah, I, I mean, you could. It, it'd be interesting to do something with Tolkien, although although Tolkien was, I mean, he was a kind of a, a crusty personality. But there were interesting things about his life. The, I mean, the one that you mentioned before, the Wide World, that deals with Robert E. Howard. I, I think it's a, a, a well-intentioned attempt to get at Howard, but I, I think it kind of falls into the trap of just seeing him as a kook, basically. Which he kind of was, but there was more to him than that too. He he had some ideas that seemed to us, and that, you know, maybe even at the time seemed pretty crazy. But I, I think that he was a a more complicated kind of a, a guy, and and the film really wants to see him as a kind of a stunted man child who just uh, can't commit to Renee Zellweger, uh, and uh, I can't remember the name of her, the, the woman that she played, um, and instead just wants to live out, you know, his kind of Conan fantasy. Um, it would be nice to see. I mean, I, I, I agree with you that Shadowlands maybe focuses, although the focus of the play was on the relationship between Lewis and Joy, uh, Joy Davis, was it? Uh, the woman the, the, that he, um, he married at the end of, of her life. Um, but, but I, there was a little bit more there, I thought, a little bit more of substance. But actually, I would like to see a movie about the Inklings. I think, I think a movie about, uh, Lewis and Tolkien and Charles Williams and those guys. Which probably, I'm just thinking, like, how many people are like, oh, my God, how boring. <laughs> but, but they were talking about a lot of really interesting stuff, myth and all this kind of stuff. You could have a, a kind of a neat film about uh, about their conversations with one another um, because they're, uh, I think there's still a certain amount of resonance. Uh, or, or their students, like Susan Cooper, who went on to be astounding writers herself. Yes, absolutely. Susan Cooper, yes, is, is a is a fantastic writer. Um, it would be, you know, I mean, it's it's funny. It would be an interesting, be interesting because I was thinking, you know, there, there haven't been a lot of films about any kind of science fiction and fantasy writers. But I mean, what must someone like Andre Norton um, have, or, or Ursula Le Guin, when 
when she was younger, what must their experience have been like? Or, or I, I think someone's probably going to make a movie out of the whole Alice Sheldon James picture. Oh, God, yeah. yeah. That would be amazing. Or, or you mentioned Angela Carter earlier. That would yeah. be. How about, how about Lee Brackett working on Empire Strikes Back, man? Yeah, yeah, no. Um, uh, who was. Um, Oh, I'm I'm blanking. Um, was Lee Brackett? Now, who was the one who was who? Um, she and Henry Kuttner had. Um, yeah, Catherine Moore, C.L. Moore. C.L. Moore, right, right. I, I mean, um, yeah, Carter had a had a crazy life. Um, Doris Lessing, who just died. Yeah. Um, oh my gosh. Yeah, she had an, an utterly insane life um, that was just. Um, and I think Lessing, to, to me, Lessing is, say, and Lessing and Carter both actually are interesting because if you were to make biopics of their lives, if you're going to in any way remain faithful to their lives, which is a big if, they weren't just defined by a single romantic relationship, say. So you can't, you know, uh, I mean, of course, then here's poor P.L. Travers. So, you know, who knows what would happen. But mm. but I, I do think that you could, if if you dealt with them, and, and with some measure of integrity, you could come up with really interesting films that would be about more than um, more than than just oh, I had this affair with this guy and I wrote this novel. Hey, we should put together these pitches. People would totally make these movies. <laughs> yeah, well, you know. <laughs> if there are any Hollywood producers listening right now, like call us. I'm making the little right, right. phone thing with my hand right now. <laughs> right. So then she writes the Golden Notebook. <laughs> <laughs> All right, great. So uh, I think we should uh, start wrapping this up. So, uh, so John Langan, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Dave. I really appreciated it. Yeah. And Kat Howard, thanks for joining us. Thanks very much. I enjoyed being here. And of course, big thanks again to Joe Haldeman for being our guest today. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Dan Darlin and Jordan Scott Falk in the U.S and Rivermute in Canada. Jordan Scott Falk writes, The Bible of Science Fiction. Now at 100 episodes, Geek's Guide is the only podcast out there that has thoroughly explored the known universe of science fiction topics with professionalism and consistent quality. Best episodes include interviews with George R. R. Martin, Anne Rice, and Orson Scott Card. I've listened to every episode and there are no lemons. Try it. Speaking of listening to every episode, in our last show, I thanked a few listeners who had mentioned on Facebook or Twitter that they've listened to every single show. After that episode aired, it was pointed out to me that I had neglected to thank my mom, who has also listened to every episode. So definitely big thanks as well to Kathy Kirtley for listening to every episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy and for giving birth to me. Also, huge thanks to everyone who's contributed money to the show, including David Loughran, crowdfunder number 59, Carl Watson, crowdfunder number 35, Colleen Beyer, crowdfunder number 20, Zach Chapman, crowdfunder number 41, and Shane Stewart, crowdfunder number 36. And a special thank you to Raymond Chan, crowdfunder number 65, for becoming the fourth person to be making monthly contributions to the show. To find out more, visit our website at geeksguideshow.com and click on crowdfunding. All right, so that was our show. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. 
If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.